Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. So glad to see our family joined together today. Um, some have come from far who have been family members before and have come back to be part of us uh, this morning. Some of you are visitors, and we're so thankful to have you with us in our fellowship today. It's special to see you and to get to know you. So today, we're going to talk about one of the four-letter words that we all just don't like. It's not one of the curse words. This four-letter word we're going to talk about today is called wait. Wait. How many of you have probably used in the last week maybe even the last day or the last two to three hours, phrases like, come on, hurry up, we got to go, what's taking so long? How many of you in the last week, day, or maybe a few hours have felt the urge of rushing? Got so much going on, right? We got to get going and maybe felt some frustration with a delay in counterparts in your life, maybe a coworker who's not getting back to you on time or a family member not hustling enough. There's something about us right now that we have a inward, we call it hustle. The Bible calls it impatience. <laughs> we lack patience. And today our Bible passage is going to bring us to a thought that is essential for the believer in Jesus Christ, and that is the idea of waiting upon the Lord. That phrase, waiting upon the Lord, shows up countless times throughout the Bible. Over and over, this idea that those who believe in God should have a disposition that waits for Him is paramount. It's foundational. In fact, if you're going to be a believer in God, learning how to wait on Him is at the center of of relating to him because if you don't know how to wait on God you probably don't have the right kind of relationship with him you might treat him like a genie in a bottle or a concierge at a hotel do what I ask but maybe you haven't really learned who he is just yet so we've come to a story again in Isaiah chapter 30 now and the story is going to sound pretty familiar to you the southern kingdom of Judah is again under pressure politically and militarily from the northeast corner, from, this, from the country of Assyria. They are the world power still, and the Assyrians on the northeast corner of, of Israel and then Judah are continuing to put pressure on them because they're wanting to take them over, control the Palestine region, which then gives them a lot of economic advantages in that world of that day. And so at this time, all these small nations in Palestine are scrambling. What do we do? How do we survive? How do we live? Who do we make alliances with? And they're all sitting there forming alliances and trying to get in cahoots so that they could survive the Assyrians coming after them. And Judah makes a mistake. Judah being the special people called out by God who have, from their very foundation, existed as a nation saved by God, for God, forget who to trust. They forget who to wait for. 
And in their haste, they send some delegates down to Egypt, and they beg Egypt to bail them out, to be their protector. Now, Egypt, you might think, oh, charitable Egypt, right? How nice of them to be willing to help Judah in the time of trouble to stave off Assyria. But no, 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 listen, Egypt has their own agenda. They need a buffer between them and Assyria, so they're gladly going to support Judah to remain in control of their own land so that they can have a buffer zone between this world power, Assyria, and them. And it doesn't turn out well for Judah. But here in chapter 30, verse 15 through 18, the prophet hones in on not the political problem or the economic problem or the military problem, The prophet hones in on the spiritual problem, the problem that we have too today, even though we may not be challenged with a military situation, the problem we have. And he finishes with this last phrase in verse 18. Listen to this. He says, blessed are all of those who wait on the Lord, who wait for him. In fact, later in chapter 40, he's going to say, those who wait upon the Lord are those who renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not grow weary. They walk and they don't faint. Those that know how to wait upon God in their life for what they're doing find a renewed sense of strength, security, and hope. But we've got to learn how to wait. So let's try to do that this morning. The first of all, we're going to learn this, the essence of waiting. What's behind waiting? And as I've mentioned, this phrase is found all over the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the New Testament is mainly used to describe Christians waiting upon the return of Jesus. We're expectant of him to come. We're hopeful for him to come. We believe that he's coming back and we can't wait for it. We're excited. In the Old Testament, most of the time it means to depend upon God's providential care. So to wait upon the Lord means for us to be the people of God, waiting for God to move, to act, to take into consideration and do something for the people of God. And so over and over, the prophets and the psalmist would cry out, learn how to wait upon God because it's going to turn out better for you. You see, this idea of waiting upon God is the believer's expression of trust and expectation. It's the believer's expression of a kind of hope that depends upon God to come through for them in their life, what they're dealing with. It's about, waiting is all about setting aside your abilities, your skills, your insight, your wisdom, your activity, to make things happen and trusting in God's ability, God's insight, God's wisdom, and God's action. Now, at first, it may sound like waiting is sort of this dull and boring and lifeless activity of a believer. We just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and hope that God will come through, but we don't know. Maybe he will, but in fact, the idea of waiting is an active obedience of the believer. It's anticipatory. It's excited, it's prayerful, it's watching. Waiting on God is this expectation that I'm lifting my life, my prayer, my, uh, my whole world to God and watching to see how he moves and acting in obedience on a day-to-day basis. Now, there are four qualities that shape 
what waiting is all about. And you're going to learn them here in verse 15. Go back to verse 15. The prophet is going to tell you, he says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, here are the four qualities of what it means to wait. First of all, he says, return. In returning and rest, he says, you'll find your salvation. Let's start, first of all, with the idea of returning. You see, waiting on God actually begins with coming to God. Because as we've described already, the idea of waiting is a trust. It's an expression of dependence. And the reality is this. Every person in this room is waiting on something. Is waiting on someone. Is trusting something. And so when the prophet says, here's what it means to wait, to return, what he's saying is you've got to actually the idea is repentance in the Bible, turn away from what you are trusting towards a trusting of God. You are trusting something right now. Now, chances are, because we live in 21st century Western culture in America, the thing you probably trust the most is just an educated guess. I may be wrong, but this is my best guess. The thing you trust the most is you. The self-centered self-reliant experiment of the enlightened western world is finally figuring out that it's probably not going to work but we are full of a nation of people that trust themselves that rely upon themselves that are skeptical of insight wisdom or action from anybody else because we have learned to trust only ourselves this is what makes us so impatient by the way with people you know what impatience really is it's the frustration that you want to be God, but you're not God, and people aren't responding to you when you snap your fingers. You're meeting that friction head on. And so this return that you and I have to do is a return to God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 tells us that sin makes us hostile towards the supremacy of God in our lives. We don't like that. Sin is the expression of self-trust. And it makes us hostile towards God being supreme in our life. And you and I must return to him if we're going to learn to wait. The second thing we've got to do when we return is actually learn how to rest. You notice he says, in returning and rest, you'll find your salvation. Psalm 23, that famous phrase where he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2 starts this way. He makes me lie down. You catch the action in that phrase? He doesn't request you to lay down. He doesn't beg you to lay down. He doesn't say, hey, here's a nice bed. Would you like to lay down? It says, when the Lord is my shepherd, he sometimes makes us lie down. That means he causes us to rest. He causes us to close our eyes. You see, you only really truly rest in your life when you release the burdens you're bearing, the responsibilities you're carrying, and the weight in your life to somebody else. When, think about this situation maybe at work or in your life when you've got something going on and a counterpart to you you really trust. You think they've got competency, they've got skill, they've got wisdom, and you turn over something you're working on to them and you go, I know they'll handle it. I know they'll take care of it. Or maybe the reverse is true for you. You're working on a, something with somebody in your life, a coworker, a friend, and you turn it over to them, but you don't trust them. Do you ever really let go of it in your mind when you don't trust them? You're worrying about it. You're, you're just certain they're not going to figure it out. You're like, oh, how much am I going to have to fix when I get this back? You don't rest, right? 
You see, in returning to God, the second thing with regards to waiting is you've got to learn to rest. So what is it that's keeping you up? What are you anxious about? The next job you're going to get? The one you have isn't working? How your kids are going to turn out? Is your marriage going in the right direction? Do you have enough money to retire? Do you, what, are you, what are you worried about? In returning to God and waiting for him means to actually take those things that are burdening you and go, I actually think he's got it. Now, the third thing he tells us to do is actually have a quietness. What does he mean by quietness? Now, is he like the dad that buys the car with DVD players, so when he drives, it's just quiet in his car? Oh, y'all don't, we, we bought DVD players. Okay, yeah, you know what it's like when you're right. Whoo, it's quiet. No, that's not what he's talking about. Verse 15, he says, in returning and rest, you'll have your salvation. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Quietness, what he's saying is the believer in God has a posture, are you ready? Of listening, not demanding. Take a quick inventory of your life. How full is your life right now of just running around ordering or requesting things to be done? You do this. You go here. Kids, come on. Hey, can you get this done? Your whole life probably operates in a rhythm of ordering and hoping things get done, right? In your relationship with God, when you return to him and you trust, you rest in him that he's got it under control, you learn a posture of what he calls quietness, which is you approach God ready to hear, not ready to order. Evaluate your prayer life for a minute. Does your prayer have any cadence or rhythm of just quiet listening, reflecting, patience? Does your prayer life, is it just full of God do this, God do this, God I don't like this, God change this, where you're just barking orders at him? Or is your prayer life open-handed and open-minded? God, where, how, what? Do you see the difference? Ready to receive instruction or ready to order commands. There's a difference in the posture the believer has with God. And we've got to think about how we return and relate to him. The last one he says is this. So return and rest your salvation. Quietness and trust is where your security it is. He says the better word probably would be confidence. This security, this assurance. I know he's got it. It's a great feeling to know that the one you're counting on will come through. They will now, believer, listen, the central factor in your relationship with God being right, being healthy, being good, is this idea of actually trusting God, his wisdom, his insight, his power, his ability, his timing, to actually trust that, to relate to God without trust is to actually miss who God is. It's like in my house when my children interact with me as if they're the boss, right? You ever experienced that before where your children think they know it all and they tell you what to do and they, they've got it all figured out and, and they start ordering parents around or they start being defiant, right? To, it doesn't work that way, right? There's friction in that relationship because what you want out of your children is a, is a trust. Hey, we're going to go here. We're going to do this at this time in this place because you as a parent are seeing a higher plane, a broader vision than what your child is seeing. And at center of your relationship with God is do you trust his ability, his wisdom, his timing, his goodness? 
Because when you do, you'll continue to return to him. You'll rest with your burdens. And you'll have a posture of listening, not a posture of ordering. That's the essence of waiting on God. But what's the challenge? What makes this hard, right? Well, if you look down at the beginning of the chapter, in verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 30, God begins to describe what, it, what Judah was doing when they were not trusting, when they're not waiting upon God. He begins to describe, he says down in chapter uh, 30, verse 1, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not my plan. Challenge number one for us waiting upon God is our plans. You've probably made plans in your life, right? How many five-year plans have you made and then redone and then redone and then redone, right? I don't know if I've actually finished a five-year plan in my life ever. They just change, right? We just, okay. But we get locked into what we want, the outcome that we want, and we're so convinced sometimes that the plan that we have, the outcome that we see, is the very best thing that could ever happen. And when that gets derailed, and when it doesn't happen, it leads to incredible frustration. And when we have a plan that has not been consulted with with God, and we've got our wisdom, our insight, our outcomes, what we often end up doing is acting before praying and driving things forward without watching. When it doesn't happen, this plan we have, we oftentimes get angry with God. How could you let this happen? This was a good plan. This is a good idea. I want to honor you with this and do this. And it's not happening. We get angry with him because our plans aren't happening. But Proverbs tells us this way in chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, in every way that you go, acknowledge him, which means come to him and ask, is this right? And the proverbial writer says, he will direct where you go. So our plans sometimes get in our way. The second thing that gets in our way is our power. You see, you and I have visions in our mind, things that we want to accomplish, things that we want to happen. And when that takes place, we turn oftentimes to our own power. Egypt was the nation that Judah believed could get done the thing they wanted to get done. They had a plan. Egypt, you protect us from Assyria, and then we're all good. That was their plan. And so they turned to their power. They turned to who they believed could get done what they wanted to get done. And when you and I start with our plans, we turn to our power. Now here's the risk for people that find themselves in church every Sunday. Sometimes the power you turn to for your plans is God actually himself. But not God in the sense in which he wants to relate to you the right way. God in the way that you want to relate to him yourself. Here's what I mean. You've got a plan, you've got an idea, and the way you're going to get that plan done is you turn to this omnipotent genie and you say, hey God, I know you can do all things. Here's what I want done. Can you get this done for me? Without ever asking, God, what do you want for my life? God, where do you want me to go? God, who do you want me to marry? God, what job do you want me to take? God, what city do you want me to live in? God, where in the body... And in my community, do you want me to serve? Without ever asking that, sometimes we just say, here's what I want to do. Here's where I want to go. God, can you make this happen? And in religion, sometimes we use God as a power, but don't relate to him as a father. So our plans and our power can sometimes get in our way of actually waiting upon the Lord. And at this point, it might sound like our struggle is that we are well-intended go-getters. 
active, people that hustle, that drive, that make things happen. And we mean well. We just forget about God's plan and God's power sometimes, but we mean well. Now, I may be able to fool you humans with that intention. I may be able to fool you that, hey, I'm a well-intended go-getter, and I just go after things and make things happen, and sometimes I forget to pray to God and ask him what he wants done, but, you know, I'm just this well-intended go-getter, but I can't actually fool God with that. Did you know that? Because if you go down to verse 9, look what God says about these people who had plans and power that looked well-intended. I'm sure the king of Judah wanted to save his people. Good plan. He turned to a power he believed could get done, Egypt. But look what God says in verse 9 about them. For they are a rebellious people. Lying children. Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. To speak, these people say, speak to us smooth things, prophecy illusions. Leave the, way of the, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Here's the really the challenge to your waiting. It's not just your plans or your power, but underneath that is actually our pride. It's our pride. You see, I can actually make plans that look like they're for the Lord. And I can actually turn to some power that looks godly on the surface. But if it hasn't started with a waiting upon the Lord, a returning to Him, a quietness, a trusting of Him, a reliance upon Him. If it hasn't involved that, it's my plan and my power, and what it really is is my pride. You see, He calls us rebellious because we're doing it our own way. He calls us liars, lying children, wanting to do things our own way, lying to ourselves and to others. And He calls us, at the end there, children unwilling to hear. And God in his gentleness sometimes will let us go to the end of our plans and our power and our pride. And he says in verse 13, you're like a wall that's breaking down. You're like a vessel that's crumbling. It's not going to end right. I like the way that A.W. Tozer said it. He said the, we, the reason why so many people are troubled and still seeking and still making uh, little forward progress in their life is because they haven't come to the end of themselves yet. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with the work of God in our lives. So what are we going to do? How are we going to get to be people who learn how to wait? We've got to actually have a new object to see. We've got to see what God wants us to see. Look down in verse 18. He says, for a pe- pardon me, verse 18 says, Therefore, the Lord, the covenant name of God, the God who wants to be there for you. He wants you to see him. And what does he want you to see about him? He wants you to see, first of all, that he is waiting for you. He says in verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Now, God is not waiting like you're waiting or need to learn how to wait. He's not waiting on us like we wait on him. He's waiting in a patient sense. He's waiting in the sense that says, I know you're going your own way by your own power, but I won't leave. I'm patient with you. I'll stay. And when you come to the end of yourself and all things fall apart and you cry out, I'll be here. I'm waiting to be gracious. He says he's waiting for you. He says he's calling for you. Look in the end of, middle of verse 18. Therefore, he says, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. What does he mean by that? It means that he is constantly trying to declare to you 
There's no one greater to trust than me. He's calling out to you. And sometimes this is in your success. When he blesses plans, sometimes it's in your destruction, your difficulty. When things aren't going well and you've made plans by your own power and it's not coming to fruition and in your frustration, God's trying to tap you on the shoulder gently and say, I'm exalting myself. I've got better plans and greater power. Come, trust me. And in that, he's not being mean. He says he's being merciful. He's exalting himself to be merciful. The third thing he says is that he's providing for you. Where do you see that? The end of verse 18 says that God is a God of justice how is justice providing for us you see god is a god of justice because he's a god who takes care of things the right way the right way he looks at the things that are causing us problems things that are in our life that are hurting us and he takes care of those things in fact he took care of your greatest enemy The very thing that deceives you, that robs you of joy, that steals your faith, that erodes your relationship with God, he takes away and deals with what the Bible calls your sin. The thing that has enslaved you and tortured you and deceived you and lied to you. And when you and I finally realize that it's our sin, which is self-exaltation, when we realize that our sin is what's doing this to us, We finally, as he'll describe here, cry out to him. Guess what God does when you cry out, when you finally realize this? He says he listens. Read verse 19 with me quickly. He says, For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity... And the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eye shall see your teacher, and your ear shall hear a word behind you saying this, This is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Here's what he's saying. When you come to the end of your rope and things aren't working in your power, by your plans, with your strength and your wisdom, and you finally say, God, I need your help. He shows up not as your mocker saying, ha, I told you so. He shows up not as your judge saying, nice try, good luck getting back with me. He shows up as your teacher. And he says, here's the way. And in about 800 years from when Isaiah wrote this, There was a man who showed up as a teacher who went about teaching and preaching the kingdom of heaven, the gospel, proclaiming repentance and the gospel of the uh, the kingdom of the gospel to all nations. He was telling people about this. And he comes to the end of his life, the greatest teacher the world has ever known. And he doesn't just say, here is the way. He says, I'm the way. You see, this cry that you and I are going to have when we come to the end of our rope saying our sin is not working for us, it's destroying us, and God's going to hear that cry and answer us. There was a time when this teacher, at the end of his rope, because of our sin, cried out, my God, my God. And for a moment, that cry was not answered so that your cry could be. You understand that? And so return to him. Rest in him. 
have quietness of spirit and learn to trust. You can come as we stand to sing.